0: Good morning, faith family. Happy Easter, happy resurrection Sunday to you all. Uh, Let's open the Word of God together. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And what an absolute joy and privilege it is to be here, uh, gathered as a faith family on Easter Sunday, 2023. I was gonna do the whole He Is Risen, He is Risen Indeed thing, but Veldon beat me to the punch. Thanks for stealing my joy this morning. Uh, Let's just do it, anyways, right? He is risen. risen Man, that felt good. You know, Veldon had to. Man, I love you, Veldon. If you are a guest, welcome. I look forward uh, to meeting you, and I hope you'll join us again next week as well. If you were in town just visiting family, it is good to have you with us today, also. Uh, Luke chapter twenty-four. This is the first passage we will be in this morning. If you know a little bit about Luke, he was a physician who became a follower of Jesus and traveled closely with the Apostle Paul on several of his missionary journeys. So as a physician, Luke was gifted, he was good at detailed research. And the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts are actually parts one and two of Luke's detailed historical account of Jesus' life and work in the world. And next week, we'll be jumping back into a study of Acts that we started a few weeks back. This week, we are in Luke 24 to let Luke tell us about the events of that first Easter morning. In addition to Luke 24, we are going to go way back into the Old Testament, into the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, We're going to look at the first 11 verses there. All the verses will be on the screen, but if you are one of those people who likes to have the verses in your own Bible, you can go ahead and mark your place if you would like. Keep your finger there while we read our main passage from Luke 24. Now, if you are a regular here, you know the drill. Before we read our main passage each week, we spend a few moments in total silence (laughs) just to make sure our hearts and minds are ready to listen to the Word of God so if you are new here, if you're a guest, here's your warning. When it all gets quiet, we did not all fall asleep. Uh, this moment of stillness is simply our way of setting up a guard for ourselves each week to make sure that we go into the reading of God's Word with the full reverence and the full attention that it deserves. And so join me as we take a few moments, then I will pray and read today's main passage. Father, as we open your word to the Gospel of Luke and then to Ecclesiastes, our prayer is that you would work through your word to accomplish the purposes for which you have inspired it, Lord. This morning, fill us anew with the hope of Christ's resurrection. Show us your glory in our risen Lord. Renew our faith in the resurrection. And for those here this morning who maybe have not yet believed, have sparked faith in the truth of your resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that you help us hear your gospel from your word and the power of your spirit so that you can transform us by your word into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, God, all for your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. In the gospel of Luke chapter 24, starting in verse one, the word of God says, but on the first day of the week. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. In returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna... Now, many things in life turn out to be too good to be true, things like spring days that never end, uh, ice cream that never melts, cookies and brownies that, no matter how much you eat, never add a single ounce to that scale when you step on it in the morning, and though I cannot prove it, I'm convinced that part of the new heavens and the new earth will be the ability to eat as much dessert as we want with zero consequences. Can I get a witness? Have you ever been let down by something that turned out to be too good to be true? Maybe a dream job that turned out to be a nightmare. Or a steal of a deal on a used car that just ended up being a money pit. Or maybe one of those coupons you have received in the mail, and when you take to the store, the cashier then pulls out a magnifying glass to show you the fine print. And as it turned out, the only thing in that store not exempt from that coupon is a pair of socks with a llama wearing neon sunglasses. Although, I must confess, I would probably buy those socks. They sound pretty awesome to me. Uh, it is no fun when something turns out to be good, too good to be true. And the better that thing was cooked up to be, the harder it lets you down when it turns out to have been too good to be true. Now, when these women came back from the tomb to tell the disciples what they'd found... Luke says in verse 11 that their words seemed to the apostles like no more than an idle tale. Their words seemed too good to be true. But somewhere in the space between verses 11, verse 11 and verse 12, the wheels in Peter's mind start turning. Could it be? He thinks back to all the things that Jesus said, how he had told them that he would die and rise again, he probably starts regretting that time that he cut Jesus off. If you remember the story, Jesus was talking about his death, and Peter breaks in and tells Jesus not to talk that way. If he had been listening closely to everything Jesus said and remembered them, then these ladies' words, this news of Jesus rising again would not have sounded like an idle tale. It would have not have sounded too good to be true. Well, how would it have sounded then? How would the apostles have received this news of Jesus rising again had they recollected all that Jesus had said and truly and fully understood the real point of why he had come? Instead of sounding too good to be true, I believe it would have sounded too good to not be true. What does it mean for something to be too good to not be true? Do I mean that the resurrection is something that we have to believe Even against all logical or scientific sense, or if we hope to live with hope and hold on to our faith. That is the way some people have decided to approach the resurrection. They don't want to let go of it, but they conclude, well, there's no way it really happened. And just use your brain, dead bodies don't get up. But even still, it's, it's a powerful story, it's a powerful myth, it's a powerful metaphor, kind of like the phoenix rising from the ashes. And even if it's not true, well, even if it is too good to be true, it can still be helpful. There's a Greek word that sums up that line of thinking, and you pronounce it ba If the resurrection of Jesus did not really happen then it is absolutely meaningless, and it is absolutely powerless. And if all the gospel has to offer us is positive thinking or moving metaphors, we are not only hopeless, we are also foolish for trying to live life the Christian way. Even if you only go to church once a year on Easter, then I contend that you are wasting a very beautiful spring Sunday morning if Jesus did not truly actually rise from the dead. If the resurrection of Jesus is not a historical fact, then it should be tossed aside. So what then do we mean by calling the resurrection of Jesus too good to not be true? What I mean is this. That when we understand the resurrection of Jesus the right way for what it truly is, then it will become to us the single most logical and rational event in all of human history. It will become the single event that makes sense of human existence as we know it. It is not only true. It is the truth of all truths. It is the truest thing you and I have ever heard. The resurrection is too good to not be true. And when we understand it the right way, that is, not as some repetitive tradition that we get dressed up for and go to grandma's house once a year, or some random tale that gives us the warm and fuzzies, but as the center of it all as the very key that unlocks the meaning of life itself. When when we see the resurrection of Jesus that way, our hearts will hardly be kept from leaping out of their chests, screaming out, this is it. This is what I've been looking for and longing for all along. This is where the book of Ecclesiastes comes in. It's helpful to us because we need some help in learning how to see the resurrection of Jesus the right way and take off all the the junk and things that have kept us from seeing it the right way. Ecclesiastes helps us do just that. Ecclesiastes, this book was written by a man named Solomon who was the wisest man to ever live. Now, he wasn't just wicked smart like an MIT student. His wisdom was supernatural. It was a gift from God. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's look back on life. It is his attempt to understand the meaning of life and and to unlock the real secret to living it right. Though he was supernaturally wise, though, Solomon was a sinner like us. And he had made his share of mistakes. And in Ecclesiastes, what we get is a bit of Solomon living in the rear view. You know the saying, hindsight is always 20-20. So in the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3, he wrestles with the complexity of life. That is, he deals with the dilemma we all face. That life is like one big roller coaster of highs and lows. No matter how hard we fight it, we're stuck on that roller coaster of high and low. And so how do we deal with that reality? And Solomon tells us, verse 1, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, And a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. So step one, he says, to dealing with the roller coaster of life is to simply accept the fact that for everything there is a season and there is much wisdom. In realizing that seasons come and season go and, and none of them last all that long in the grand scheme of things. But Solomon goes on. Because while it is helpful to accept the reality of seasons coming and going, that still doesn't satisfy our souls, does it? I mean, sure, I can accept that seasons come and seasons go, but I don't have to like it. You know, accepting the fact that a mountaintop is followed by a valley of death doesn't really comfort my soul all that much, does it? So Solomon goes on, and he continues this line of thinking with a question in verse 9. He says, what gain has a worker from his toil? So Solomon starts diving a little deeper to the heart of the matter. So what? Even if we accept that there is a season for everything, what real gain is there in that? Even if there is a right time for everything, and we play by that rule, what's the point? That's what he's asking there in verse 9. And so he goes on. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And looking back over his life, a a life lived as the wisest man on the earth, but not only that, as a man who had a privileged vantage point, of the most powerful king on earth, from which he could observe and study. He had every resource at his disposal. He says, I have seen the business. I have seen the work. I have seen all the things that God has given human beings to fill their days with. And here's my conclusion. God has made everything beautiful when we see it in its time. Well, what does that mean? It means that there is a beauty A delightfulness hardwired into each and every experience that makes it enjoyable when we embrace those things in their own respective seasons. Winter comes, whether you want it to or not, and you might as well delight in the crispness of the cold air and the sights you can't see when the leaves are on. And spring comes, whether you like it or not, and we might as well delight in the bright green explosions of new leaves. And uh, allergy medicine up to endure the pollen that they bring. Now there's some power in that wisdom, isn't there? There's some power in the wisdom of embracing the beauty of things by receiving receiving them as they come. That is, there's a beauty in living with an open hand. But even still, does that really settle the unsettledness of our souls and once and for all put our restlessness in our hearts at rest? It doesn't. And Solomon knows it. So he keeps diving deeper. And he continues verse 11 with the beautiful word, also. There's more. He He says, also, he, that is God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Also, God has put eternity into man's heart. That is to say, God has put something in each and every one of our hearts at the core of who we are. Hardwired there that longs for eternity. That is, that longs for life that never ends. Which is why death feels like such an imposter. Which is why death feels like the greatest disfigurement and distortion of how things are supposed to be. When we are forced to look death in the face, we know in our heart of hearts that things are not supposed to be that way. And no matter how much we embrace the beauty of things in their own seasons, our hearts will still be screaming at us. There's got to be more. I know there is more. And, And here's the best part about what we read there in Ecclesiastes 3.11 verse 11 tells us that we are not crazy or deluded or misled or mistaken for feeling that way, for feeling that we were made to live forever, that the world itself was meant to go on forever and that death shouldn't be a thing. I hate it when people try to offer consolation or try to sound wise by saying, well, death is just part of life. That's supposed to be helpful. Like kidney stones, taxes, and root canals are part of life too, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. It doesn't make him any less painful. And to use that word again, baloney. Death is not just part of life, at least not life as it is supposed to be. Death is the great intruder, uninvited, who imposes on us all. Death is an imposter. Death is the lie. The longing. In our hearts to live forever. The eternity written on our hearts. That is the truth. That is the true story. Now Solomon back in the day when he lived. Did not have all the information he needed to unravel the tension in his heart. To to see what his heart was truly longing for. He knew his heart. And all our hearts long for eternity. But as it stood in that day God had also made it so that man could not find out what God has done From beginning to end. And there's still so much that we don't know today. But we do have a bigger glimpse of the story. Now Solomon knew that somehow, someday God would resolve that tension. He knew that somehow, someday that longing for eternity would be fulfilled. The curse of death undone. But it is not until we see the empty tomb of Jesus. And we finally see for the first time what our hearts have been longing for all along. That is an answer to death itself. And so when we see the resurrection of Jesus against this backdrop and view it the right way from the right point of view, we can see it is not too good to be true. On the contrary, it is too good to not be true. It is the most logical sensible thing to see the resurrection for what it truly is as God's antidote to the great singular problem at the core of all the world's problems as the great undoing the great reversal of death itself now cs lewis is uh, is helpful here in helping us unpacking this helping us unpack this idea of a longing in our hearts for something that this world cannot satisfy so i'll quote him uh, at a decent bit of length here Lewis writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others do the same. Our creator has implanted into our hearts a desire, a longing for eternity. Now, life is a vapor. Life is short. We all get that. We know that. But we also all know deep in our bones that it's not, that's not how it's supposed to be. And so when we see the Lord Jesus rising from the dead, it sends our hearts leaping up like a kid that's supposed to stay still and quiet during a somber ceremony who can't help himself from standing up in the seat and cheering at the top of his lungs. Our hearts jump up and scream, this is it. This is what I've been looking for all along. Someone strong enough to beat death and bring me along with him. This story of a Savior who comes and dies for us and rises for us and invites us to join him, it is the very thing we've been after all along, even if we didn't know how to ask for it. And then, though, even as your heart is still leaping for joy, all too often there's another voice that rises up, a questioning voice. But rising from the dead, doesn't that sound just too good to be true? That's not rational. It's not logical. You can't prove it. To believe that would be too big a leap of faith. Forgive me for quoting Lewis again. But he's very helpful here, too. He writes, I believe there is such a place as New York. I have not seen it myself. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary man believes in the solar system, atoms, evolution, and the circulation of their blood on authority. That is, Because the scientists say so. Every historical statement in the world is believed on authority. None of us has seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Armada. None of us could prove them by pure logic as you prove a thing in mathematics. We believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them. In fact, on authority. A man who jibbed at authority in other things, as some people do in religion, would have to be content to know nothing in all his life. So yes, believing that Jesus rose from the dead is a matter of faith. It is a matter of believing something that you cannot scientifically prove or come to a rational conclusion about, but so is every other historical fact. And so are so many other things that you believe to be true and depend on for life itself. So why not the resurrection of Jesus Christ? In the deepest part of who you are, you want it to be true. And in the deepest part of who you are, if you are honest with yourself, you know it is true. And that there is nothing you have ever heard in your life that has been any truer. To believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to come alive again. To believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to become human again. To believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is is to see a foretaste of what can one day lie ahead of you. And what one day will lie ahead of you if you have trusted in him. Philippians 3.21 tells us how precisely the resurrection foreshadows our future as his followers. It says this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The physical body into which Christ arose was a glorified body. That is one that was free from the corruption of sin. It was a human body as it was meant to be untouchable by sin, sickness, injury, disease, death, aging. Paul tells us that we will get the same kind of body when Jesus Christ returns. And if you're telling yourself that's just too good to be true, then don't believe yourself for a minute. It is not too good to be true. On the contrary, it is too good to not be true. It is the very design of life for which we were created It is the very fullness of life for which our hearts long. It is the kind of body in which we will spend forever and ever in the new earth that is to come, that will be established after Jesus returns. So the question before us today is, what must we do to punch our ticket? How do we sign up for what Jesus is doing and what he is going to do? How about I just let Jesus tell you himself? In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Mark sums up the punchline to all of Jesus preaching and teaching while he was on earth like this. It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That is, the kingdom of God has come and the doors are opened. And the way you enter into that kingdom is to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from yourselves and trust in Jesus. Could it be that simple? Isn't that too good to be true that you could get in to God's kingdom and the promise of rising from the dead and all the other promises of Jesus simply by turning away from your sins and trusting in the work of Jesus? Isn't there something more I have to do? I would contend quite the opposite. It's actually too opposite. It's actually too good to not be true. Had God designed it so that we had to bring something of our own merit to the table, we would all be lost. Were it to come down to money or wealth, the richest man would look penniless next to the treasures of heaven. If it were to come down to good deeds, then the saintliest person would look like the wickedest of murderers next to God's perfection. If it were to come down even to our good intentions, what we had hoped to do, well, the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But even our good intentions... Turn out to be mixed motives in the end, and what we presumed in ourselves to be good intentions were often only our pursuit of selfish gain. And no, when it comes to God's righteous standard, only the righteousness of Jesus Christ passes the test. Jesus Christ did not have to share his righteousness, he did not have to welcome us into his victory over death. But as it stands, he has welcomed us, and as it stands, the only way to access his righteousness is to repent and believe salvation is by God's grace alone through faith alone so if you have never trusted in Jesus won't you do so today won't you turn away from your sins turn away from your own attempts at self-made righteousness at your own attempts to fix yourself and save yourself and trust in Jesus he lived the perfect life you could not live He died the death you deserve to die, enduring the punishment for sin that you had coming to you. And then he rose again. Glory to God. He rose again so that you might have newness of life today and an eternal life to be raised with him one day forever and ever. Let's all go ahead and stand together as we close our time. Now, Velda and the musicians will come forward and they're going to lead us in a song To give us time to respond and let the scriptures we studied just sink in. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, simply put, is too good to not be true. You know, the angels there at the tomb, when the women found it empty, you know, that is how they viewed the resurrection of Jesus. It was no surprise to them, it was what was planned along. And so, whenever they saw the women coming, They were almost shocked as to why they would be there. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you. Can not you hear the almost confused sound in their voices? Why do you seek the living among the dead? It is a, a foolish, almost unthinkable thought to these angels that someone would consider looking for Jesus here of all places in a tomb. You don't look for living people inside a grave any more than you look for pickles in the frozen food sections or dog food at the auto parts store. It is a nonsensical thing from the angel's perspective that anyone would be looking for Jesus here at the tomb after the coming of the third day since his death. Remember how he told you. He would die, but on the third day he would rise. Too good to be true? Don't believe that for a minute. The good news that Jesus has risen from the dead is too good to not be true. It is the truest thing you can ever believe, not only because it is historically true, not only because it is factually true, but because believing it is the gateway to becoming truly alive. It is the doorway to becoming truly human again. Now I apologize for making you stand up before I gave you the one fill in the blank this morning. You can go back and fill it in later. Here's the one main takeaway I want to give you. The resurrection of Jesus is a beacon of hope to the life you were made to live and one day will live if you trust in him. Now, a lighthouse is great news to a ship lost at sea, but it does absolutely no good to that ship if the ship does not respond in the right way. You're here today not by mistake. You're here today on purpose. If you've never trusted in Jesus respond to this good news that he has defeated death and rose again and wants to bring you along with him this morning. As we sing this song, if you are a believer, let the truth of the resurrection sink in. If there's been doubts in your hearts over the years or even this week, my prayer for you this week has been that this morning, it would, the resurrection would come to you not potentially something that's too good to be true, but as something that is absolutely too good to not be true. If you're not a believer this morning, I'll be down front. Um, brand if you want to come on forward or any other pastors that are in here, um, we'll be up here. We'd love to talk with you. Um, if you'd like to make a decision this morning, of course, we'll be around after the service as well. Don't waste a perfectly good Easter Sunday to make the best decision you can ever make to respond to the gospel, to repent of your sins, and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for defeating death. Thank you for rising from the grave after defeating sin and and welcoming us. I pray this morning you would work, God. Help us who have believed in you to live and to know you better, Jesus, and to live in the power of your resurrection. And help those this morning who have never put their trust in you to do so, to be changed for now and forever. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.